Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the political economy of tariffs. Why do people want them? Why do governments want to impose them? We're going to talk about the way that economists and political economists think about those questions. To do so, we'll be joined by Jean Grossman. Jean is the Jacob Viner Professor of International Economics at Princeton University. In a world of trade and wine and cheese, he's a very big cheese. Jean has been at the forefront of economics research on the political economy of trade policy for decades. Jean, hello. Hello. I'm going to start with an impertinent question. What's the point? Why do we need a political economic theory of trade policy? Well, we have lots of theories about trade policy, but they mostly start with the idea that can we identify the trade policies that are best for the country, that are best for efficiency? And then we teach those to our students, and then we look out in the world, and those are not the policies we tend to see out there. And so it behooves us to start thinking about why do we see the policies we actually see out there. So explain to us then the difference between a political economy approach and a purely economics-y approach to thinking about trade policy formation. Well, a political economy approach thinks about the political actors, be they voters, be they industry interest groups, be they lobbyists, be they politicians, be they bureaucrats, and tries to think about how interactions between them in a political realm determine a policy, the same way that economics typically thinks about interactions between consumers and firms, producers, governments that determine an economic outcome in an economic realm. So I suppose there's there's a demand for protectionism and a supply of protectionism, and, and political economy looks to see how those two things interact. That's a perfect way to put it. Can we start with the demand side then? How might we think about why voters demand protectionism? Well, voters aren't typically concerned about the well-being of the average American or the America as a whole. Voters, reasonably enough, are concerned about their family and their themselves. And trade has effects on income distribution, on how well different people fare in the economy. And so they will vote for protectionism or support protectionism if, if the tariffs benefit their personal income and if they don't make the things they want to buy a lot more expensive. Broadly put, if I'm a voter, I care about trade through at least two potential ways that it would affect me. One is on the consumption side. The prices of the things that I buy might be affected by more or less trade, but also my job and where it is that I work. So let's talk about the job side. How is How do economists think about that angle? Yeah, there's, there's two different ways that are prevalent for thinking about this. One is, is based on industry of where you work. One is based on your occupation. So it may be that trade affects people working in industries like steel and autos that compete with imports differently than it affects people working in aircraft or uh, computers, which are export goods to the United States. Uh, The other is on an occupational basis. Maybe trade affects differently blue-collar workers from white-collar workers, Wall Street workers from Main Street workers, and therefore the type of job you have and the skill level you have and, and the background you have colors your, your feelings about trade. What does the evidence say about how this demand is formed? What, what do we know about what the most relevant factors are for determining whether you want protectionism or not? 
I think the evidence supports, to a certain extent, both of these views. Uh, I think there's evidence that people's interests are aligned with the industry that they, they work in, and to some extent, they will vote the interests of the industry where their, where their job is. And the evidence also supports the view that more skilled workers feel differently about trade than less skilled workers. In a rich country like the U.S., where we tend to have a lot of skilled workers and we export things that use skilled workers, there's more support for open trade among the skilled workers than there is among the, the less skilled workers who have to compete with, with all those Chinese and Mexican workers. So that's demand. Can we talk about the way that political economists have thought that this demand translates into the policies that the policymakers actually implement in practice? Right. So that depends on the politicians' objectives, what they're trying to achieve politically. Presumably, first and foremost, they're interested in getting elected. And to get elected, they need votes. And they, these days, they need money, resources. And that pretty much lines up with how the political economy literature has thought about the determinants of policy. First, attention about electoral competition and how politicians choose policies to win votes. And then later, also about how politicians choose policies to collect contributions and get the resources they need to run elections. Tell us about the median voter theory. Well, this was the first political economy trade policy insight, if you will, when people have a range of views and when that range of views can be spread out in along one dimension and one more or less tariffs or more protection or less protection and along that dimension, there's going to be somebody in the middle the so-called median. And if the politician caters to that median voter, to that person who's in the middle, then he or she can win all the votes for those who prefer more than the median and or all the votes that prefer less than the median. Whereas if a politician supports a policy that favors, say, the 75th percentile, then the person running against them can choose something a little bit less and, and be preferred by all those guys who, who uh, are to the other side of the median. So if you're a political economist, then all you need to do to predict what these politicians are going to go for is to work out what the median voter thinks, and then, and then that will determine what policy you're going to get. That was a good starting point, and that's exactly what, what Wolfgang Meyer did in this, in this paper. He asked in a very standard kind of trade model, who is this median voter and what policy does he or she favor, support? So let's talk about this in the context of the United States then. Why isn't the median voter simply the average voter? Well, that was Meyer's key insight, I would say, was that the median voter in almost any country is going to be different from the average voter uh, because ownership of skills and ownership of, of capital uh, is not spread evenly across the population. Uh, in fact, it's highly skewed towards the top end. So most people don't own a lot of capital. Most people don't have a lot of skills. And so the average, which averages in all these highly educated types and all these wealthy types, is different from the median guy who's probably less skilled, less educated, and therefore the policies that, that are favored by the median voter are more the policies that, that benefit the less skilled than the average skilled. That's the theory. Do we have any evidence that this model works or is, is the best one to be using? Well, the pure median voter simply predicts that we will see protection rather than free trade in countries like the United States and, and Western Europe. So at the broadest level, 
The fact that we do see protection is supportive of, of the theory, but it's not a very refined prediction. It doesn't tell us which industries, it doesn't tell us which workers are, are, are benefit, and it also runs into a problem that we should see exactly the opposite preferences in countries that have that are exporting goods that use unskilled labor, that use uh, blue-collar workers like China, like Mexico, and yet even in those countries, we see demands for protection. If the median voter is the basic approach and doesn't get us all the way there, tell us about how political economics has become more sophisticated. The political economy literature has gone beyond the simple median voter model, if for no other reason that the median voter model requires us to identify a median but most issues in politics are more complicated than that. They have many dimensions. In trade, it's not more tariffs or less tariffs. It's tariffs for steel. It's tariffs for textiles. So we have a whole range of, of trade policies that have to be determined politically. And then, of course, we're not voting for politicians who only think about trade policy. They're also telling us about gun control. They're telling us about a whole range of, of policies. So who is the median voter? And it doesn't work issue by issue. Uh, the pol- only one politician is going to win. They have to announce one set of positions. And so we need models that allow us to think about multidimensional trade policy questions. And we need models that allow us to think about trade policy being determined in the context of a whole range of other policies. What else do we think might play an important role in the political process that ends up determining trade policy? Money is, is needed to, in, to run campaigns. Besides campaigns, politicians need information about what policies work. There's a lot of specialized expertise that the politicians don't have. And so there is a role for, for interest groups, for industry associations, for unions, both to provide resources to politicians to run their campaigns and also to provide them with the information that they need in order to make good policy or at least policy that serves their political interests. So has there been a lot of research on this information provision role of lobbying? The exact role of informational lobbying in trade policy has not been studied a lot. I think that's unfortunate. I think there are interesting things to know there. So what has the research been on? Well, the research has tended to focus more on interest groups that provide money and resources rather than interest groups that provide information and and know-how. And so you wrote a number of papers on this topic uh, in the early 1990s, one of which was titled Protection for Sale. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what the key insights are coming out of that type of work. Right. The idea of protection for sale seems a little cynical, but I think describes the reality, which is that interest groups give money to influence the positions that the politicians take rather than to support their favorites who have already taken some given positions. And then we started to think about influence politics. And and in order for interest groups to influence politicians, they have to link the rewards that they give, namely support and and money, to the positions that the the politicians take. Uh, And so we wrote down a model which sordidly, if you will, captures the notion that interest groups confront politicians with offers that says, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. And that's how trade policy gets determined. Is there any evidence that this approach that you came up with was working better? So this kind of theory actually predicts which industries will be protected and by how much. That tariffs in such and such industry will be high, steel industry will be high, agriculture will be high, maybe in in some industry much lower. So we actually derived a formula that was a prediction of 
which industries will be protected by how much. And the key to our formula was if what I refer to as the bang for buck view of politics, which is that politicians want to deliver goodies where they get the most bang, in this case, the most campaign contributions, and pay the least buck, which is to annoy the voters the least by raising their prices. And so there was a trade-off here between supporting industries where the interest group benefits a lot and where the average voter is hurt the least. You can look up in the books what the tariffs are in different industries. We predicted what variables, what aspects of the industry would determine those tariffs. There have been literally dozens of studies of this in the U.S. context, in many other contexts. And I think it's a good news, bad news story. Broadly speaking, tariffs are higher in the industries that we thought tariffs would be higher in and lower in the industries that we thought tariffs would be lower in. But our model also makes a judgment on how much politicians care about campaign contributions versus being good guys and serving the the general interest. And I guess cynics as we are, we all had a feeling that it was some of both. And the empirical evidence taking our model literally suggested a very high weight on very publicly minded politicians and placed a much lower role on how much they coveted these campaign contributions. So from that point of view, many people thought that it was a a flaw of the theory Wow, so politicians are, are more high-minded than, than economists thought they were. That is surprising. The literature that we've been talking about is a couple of decades old. So do you think some parts of it have stood the test of time better than others? And are there parts of trade policy, trade openness, that just seem to be completely unexplained by our understanding of the political economy of this stuff? I think we begin to understand which industries are are politically successful and why we see the patterns of protection that we do. I think we're a little surprised that for so many years, trade liberalization was so successful. We try to understand that in terms of mobilizing the export interests, bringing them into the political game. When we negotiate trade agreements, the contributions, the information supporting those agreements is often coming from export interests. What are they trying to accomplish? They're trying to accomplish opening up foreign markets so that they can sell their goods. They have no direct way of doing that since they have no role in the foreign political game. Uh, The only way they can do that is through our government, which means getting our government to convince the other guy to open their markets. But they're only going to do that if they get something in return. So I think the trade liberalization that we've seen is a reflection of a role played by export industries to countervail the long-standing role of import competing industries supporting protection. Nonetheless, I think there was more trade liberalization than maybe I might have expected had I made that prediction 20, 30 years ago. And now we're seeing a backlash, obviously, in the U.S., but not only in the U.S. And so I think the political economy models that we have don't really give us a handle on that. What has led us sudden to the very sudden and very rapid reversal, it seems, in the politics of, of trade. Can you tell us about your more recent work, which I, I think has tried to address that question? Right. How do, you, how do you explain a reversal like this? And the way we think about it, and I'll be the first to admit that it's speculative, we don't have proof, we just have thoughts, ideas, the way we see the world. So the first question is, how do people choose to identify? And what our model emphasizes is, There's a trade-off in identity. We get good feelings, we get psychological goodies, if you will, 
uh, from the status of groups that we identify with. So if those groups are doing well we feel we've, and we feel a part of them, we feel that we're doing well as well, even if we're personally not necessarily sharing in those benefits. So that's why you would want to identify. And then we have a cost, which is what we call a cognitive dissonance cost. If you're identifying with a group, you want to think of yourself as being like the members of that group. You don't want to think you, you don't want to think of yourself as being very different because that affects your self-esteem and how you see yourself. So I think the precipitating event is as incomes get more spread and as the elites are doing better and the middle class is doing not better and therefore the gap between them is widening, uh, it becomes harder and harder to stay in the view that you're just like the elites and that you care about them because, you know, next week that's that's who you're going to be. So while this area of study and idea is perhaps new to economists, sociologists have been thinking about these issues for a long time. So, you know, what can we learn from what they have done here? Partly just scouring the literature, we found that uh, there's a whole branch of social psychology or sociology that focuses on how, how people form their identities and how that motivates and affects their behaviors. And it's appropriately enough called social identity theory. And the thought we had is that if something changes the way people self-identify, it's going to change the people who, who they care about when they form their preferences over policy. And that's going to change how they feel about policy. Uh, so in the trade policy realm, if there's a change in social identity, what is popularly called identity politics, if you will, then very rapidly people could change their views uh, about which trade policies they support. There's another, I guess, slightly broader version of the theory, which is that, and I suppose now I'm tying this very specifically to the election of Donald Trump, which was that, that his election really wasn't very much about the economics, it was really about race. And it was really about the, the racial identities that, that the president triggered and, and that kind of division. Is this another way of, of formalizing that idea? One very important cleavage, if you will, or identification in, in U.S. politics, and I would say in, in uh, European politics as well, is along ethnic and racial lines. In, in Europe, it tends to play out more in ethnic lines about immigrants, about religion. Uh, in the U.S., it's played out more on racial lines. And so we have a bunch of workers in the import-competing uh, Rust Belt industries who now see themselves as white males, more so than they did before, or at least that's the hypothesis. Again, I emphasize we don't have the evidence on that, but that's the way we thought about it, that now their preferences over trade policy have changed because the group with which they identify and the group that they care about in their preferences has changed. You know, there's always been racial tension concerns in this country, but as long as everybody was doing well and all ships were rising, tend to be in the background a little bit. As soon as we reached a stage where we had this great recession, where people really focused on the fact that they're, they're not getting better off, maybe they're getting worse off, suddenly we start to think about who to blame and who's like us and who's part of the good guys and the bad guys. I have a final question, which is, you've clearly gone beyond the economist's standard toolkit to think about this issue of, of identity. Do you think that that should happen more often? Do you think that, that there should be more of these forays into sociology, into social psychology? I'm intrigued. I've always been hesitant because it, 
is easy to lose discipline. There's only one way to be rational, so to speak, or the economic agent, so to speak. You care about income or you care about the goodies you consume. And it may not be realistic, but we know what that means. As soon as you care about psychological things, we lose some discipline. On the other hand, I think they're indubitably important and relevant and real. Uh, and so if we leave them out of our models, we're going to be missing a lot of the story. Uh, so the short answer to your question is yes. I think th there's no choice but to start to confront the way people form their, their preferences over goods and even more so over politicians. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Gene Grossman, the Jacob Viner Professor of International Economics at Princeton University, for joining us to explain all things about the political economy of trade policy. Thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to political parties, two is better than one. <laughs>